I think a lot of people want this super luxury product, but and then they have all these great ideas sometimes with star the stars in their eyes. What they don't realize is that that's going to be a lot of extra expenses, and it might actually not be additional ROI. What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Shogren here with my co-host Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. STR Nation, before we get into this week's episode, I've got something I am so excited to share with you guys. For the last couple of years, we've been recruiting and training virtual assistants for our private mastermind students, and we have now a officially open that up to the public. So if you are looking to hire a virtual assistant for your short-term rental business, then go to strsecrets.com slash VA and we will recruit, onboard, and train a VA for you. And if they don't save you at least 40 hours a month in admin work, then you don't pay. So I put a crazy guarantee on this because I've been testing this out for the last two years with our mastermind members. And I'm so confident that it works that if it doesn't, randomly work for you, I'm literally going to give your money back. So if you want more info on that offer, head over to strsecrets.com slash VA. And now let's get to this week's episode. What's going on, STR Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Short-Term Rental Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Shogren, here with my main man and brother from another mother, Mr. Emmanuel Pani. What's up, B? My brother, good to see you once again. Just finished my second or third espresso of the day as this, this podcast continue on i just feel myself needing it funny a couple of weeks ago i talked about like health and some of the like reshift there's a priority so there's this gentleman called uh the huberman podcast you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah it's okay. good stuff amazing stuff so one of the things that i started doing from him which does everything goes against everything i believe in as, as an italian is i don't have my coffee immediately as i wake up Right. Because then, with my natural thing was to literally like crawl to the kitchen as I'm walking my dogs, turn on the coffee machine, and drink it immediately. I now wait the first hour and a half of the day without having coffee. I actually have yeah. a G1, which has also been another thing that I added to my life, which has been absolutely great. You're talking about athletic greens, right? Yes. Yes. Let me explain. And then there's this thing called morning routine, which is like lemon, like apple cider vinegar, lemon, salt, all in. In a little packet. So I squeeze all of those together and then have my coffee. And I know it feels weird to think about it, but honestly, like it gets me to this point of the day is now like three, three, four o'clock. And I don't have the like, oh, I need, I need to pick me up. Like I enjoy the coffee. It's part of how I live it. And it actually makes more of a difference when I drink it now because I actually feel my energy spiking versus before, which is kind of like getting me out of a hole. Uh, so if you're like me, that you're like, coffee before water in the morning, just give it an hour and yeah, just try it. My, yeah. my coach told me that, and I've been doing that for about six months now, and I don't know all the science behind it, but he was explaining to me that like, if you can wait the 90 minutes, it will be more effective. And, um, again, I don't, I don't remember exactly all the science yeah, behind it, but like there was like some hormonal balance. I don't know something where it was like, if, as long as you just wait that 90 minutes, then you're good. And the coffee's fine, obviously not like crazy sugary coffee, but like just coffee or espresso or whatever, it's fine for you. So 
interesting fun fact stay healthy so you can enjoy the the fruits of your labor with the business exactly and also because like to me it's just like it's it's the same thing like we're so focused about like hacking our wealth and our path to financial freedom uh and then is the remembering that like if you hack your financial freedom but then you're sick or not healthy why did you yeah what's the point exactly you know what i mean uh but after our usual rant i am super excited for our show today because I feel that it's going to be such a great learning show for everybody, myself included, uh, and just such a fun energy. Uh, and such an interesting topic, hot topic. So I can't wait for you to introduce her and for us to get going. Yeah, let's do it, man. So today on the show, we have Miss Dia Liu. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with Dia, she is a a true lady boss in the, uh, the hotelier and short-term rental space. She owns four hotels and a handful of STRs across the country. She was a patent litigation attorney litigating multi-million dollar tech and pharma products in a previous life before achieving financial freedom through short-term rentals. And uh, since she has done a variety of creative STR acquisitions and dispositions such as burrs, wrapped notes, seller financing, wholesaling, double closing, and flips. And she's also the co-founder and CEO of the Welcome Capital Fund. So without further ado, Dia, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you. I'm, like we were saying offline, selfishly, I'm excited for the show so we can, we can talk some shop. So let's go back to the beginning, though, before we get in all the, all the juice. So you had a very successful career in law. So kind of walk us back to that. And then what was that moment for you where you were like, you know what, I, I want to transition and make this shift? I've always liked traveling. I always liked hotels. I grew up traveling and driving around the U.S. We didn't really have a lot of money, so we kind of crammed six to eight people in one motel six room and went to all the national parks and just really saw a lot of the USA that way. So I've always loved traveling. And when I went to law school and then became a patent litigation attorney, I finally, I guess, so-called achieved the, the American dream, so to speak. But um, I was working nine to nine most days and sometimes nine to midnight or past midnight um, leading up to litigation and trial. Um, so I really just didn't have a lot of financial freedom or time freedom or location freedom. And so I was living in New York City at the time and I just decided that um, I set a goal for myself that I wanted to get started with real estate investing. I want to become financially free. I didn't know what that roadmap would look like. But I just kind of set a goal for myself and I moved back to Austin, which is my hometown. I started with just house hacking, really, um, and renting out my rooms on Airbnb. And I just really fell in love with short-term rentals because it gave me a lot more flexibility than long-term rentals. It gave me more cash flow. It really tied into my love of traveling and um, really beautiful experiences and spaces and design. And uh, and it appealed to the engineering part of my brain as well as the legal part of my brain. Um, I was a former engineering and biochem uh, double major, so just a lot no, of no big deal stuff. So, um, so I just loved all the titles. Like it's nothing. She's like, yeah, and also you know, I I invented things and stuff whatnot. And she's like, yeah, whatever, you know. I was also a fashion person, so I guess it just tied all the things I was nerdy about into one thing and I didn't think that there was going to be any one job so to speak that would tie like my background and, and love of fashion design my love of 
number and anal- numerical analysis, my love of legal analysis into one single thing. But really short-term impulse, it really just came all t- together that I'm analyzing deals, I'm negotiating contracts, and I get to design stuff. And um, sometimes I might even paint my own murals and tell you know, and that shows my dad who told me I suck at drawing. So <laughs> thanks, dad. <laughs> okay, dad. Oh, I love that. So I, I am a self-admitted addict to the, uh, to that show suits. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but oh my you, God. like, I love that show. I've watched every season probably multiple times at this point, but, uh, <laughs> immediately i don't know why but i always think of you when i watch that show i'm just picturing you like just working those crazy ass hours in new york city doing all that stuff and now you're like okay yeah i'm a different life now but anyway so how did that journey go to to get out of that it it also reminds me a lot of like dr rach right where you have that like traditional true american dream of like i've got this amazing you know attorney or doctor, t- some type of job, but you're just like not fulfilled. How did that transition go to, to get out of that and go full time? It was really hard. I would say that for the first two years, um, I, it really just took me about two years to uh, when I first started to really go all in on short term impulse to when I was able to quit my job. But I will say those were really tough two years just because I was already working at least 60 hours a week with my day job. But then um, during my off times or holidays or weekends, I will basically drive or fly to all my short-term rentals and do those setups myself. I didn't really know anything about renovations or and I didn't know anything about uh, and analyzing properties and et cetera. So just taking a lot of extra time for education, paying for education. And, you know, it. so over time, thanks to the fact that I had a job that can kind of help me accelerate my financial independence by just saving and investing my own money. And I was able to get to nine short-term rentals in about two years. Uh, so I was able to, um, and I had this whole grand plan of uh, doing around the world trip to celebrate the fact that I was going to be financially free in June 2020. 20, but that obviously didn't happen because uh, of a little thing called uh, COVID-19. So I still, I kind of w- waffled whether I want to quit my job when the pandemic hit, but I just decided to go all in and um, quit around August 2020. And then instead of the world trip, you start buying hotels. Is that what happened? Like, I cannot go on this world trip. Might as well just buy myself a hotel. Uh, and then can I start from there or where does, cause you know, like it's been an amazing journey and you could have kept doing what you were doing and doing the, the vacation rentals. Um, but what brought on that, the, the, the bug for the hotels and what did that journey look like? Um, I will say for the first year, I kind of focused on perfecting the art of short term rentals a little bit more and understanding other types of ways to close SDR deals. So understanding how to use hard money, understanding how to use other people, private lenders, understanding how to find my own off-market deals. Uh, when I was attorney, I didn't really have a lot of time to kind of figure out these things. So I kind of bought a lot of my short-term rentals just with the conventional mortgages out, products that, that are out there. But when I had more free time, I spent a lot of time studying other types of real estate investing methods and applying them to short-term rentals. But what really prompted me to look at hotels more was for a many, uh, for a few reasons. One being, 
I was reselling a lot of my short-term rentals um, just to kind of create additional capital to buy more more stuff or also because a lot of my properties had double in value thanks to the boom during the pandemic. Um, so I was running into the problem of base valuation of STRs based on the sales comps. And that really frustrated me that I had an STR that I bought for 255 and um, I was making about a hundred grand in that SDR. So I wanted to resell it for 500, but uh, the market had gone up a lot for that market, but it was still going to sell for closer to 400. But, you know, a turnkey SDR that's making a hundred grand, most people will happily pay 500K for, but the banks are not going to finance something like that. So that was really frustrating to me um, so that was one reason why I started to look at commercial assets because I wanted to be able to sell for more if my property is making more rather than sell based on the sales comps of the area, that surrounding area. Um, the second reason was that there was going to be, I knew that there was going to be more competition in the SDR space. It felt like SDRs, SDRs as an asset class was getting more mainstream uh, around 2021. Um, so I felt like to stay competitive, I should look at some other adjacent assets that, are, you know, like at the time I thought it was just going to be the same, just bigger. I was kind of wrong because hotels are very different. But um, so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to buy a bigger STR. Then I'm going to be like still the best in like a small pond. And so that was my second reason. And the third reason was because of STR regulations and I wanted to try my hand at towns that were enacting SDR regulations, and I would be one of the few folks that was able to do daily rentals in a restricted market. Beautiful. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a frustration that a lot of people have kind of felt. The, I, Mike talks about this a lot, right? Is the fact that like on, on the hotels, you can just go like, listen, it's black and white. We used to make X. Now we make Y and we are worth now twice as much because the property makes twice as much money. Whereas in real estate, when you're dealing with that appraiser, the appraiser is going to look at the use. And like, if the person goes and buys a property, that doesn't want it as an STR. He's like, I can't, even though you make that much money, I can't appraise it for that much because it's actually based on the use of the house, which is still a single family. And he is like, okay, rather than probably your, your legal background help you, right? Rather than argue with a pig and teaching him how to fly, I'm just going to like move on from this whole conversation altogether. I'm just going to move into hotels. Kind of share with us where that realization came to you. Like, wait, I thought these were going to be just like SDRs. They're, they're not. So what was that realization like? And, and what are some of the lessons that you learned? If we have a listener there's like, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. And how big was the first one? Because yeah. I, I talk about this all the time. Similar. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to run it like a bigger SDR and it's going to be the same. But I'm curious, like how big was it? And then what were some of those lessons that you, that you learned once you got it going? I think the first thing was um, it was harder to close my first hotel by far. I think with short-term rentals, people have this false sense of confidence because they're, they're like, oh, I can just go out and find a hotel realtor and then buy a hotel and that's it. Um, I think that's a lot easier with SDRs just because you can get pretty much anyone with a decent paying job can get qualify for a loan. And then you can just find an SDR realtor that's pretty good at what they're doing. And then you can just um, buy a SDR. But uh, with hotels, it's very different just because some, first of all, 
some hotel brokers, this might be their first hotel. They have no, they don't really understand the books that the sellers have. And also each seller has very different P&Ls and stuff. And some, some I've seen ones where the P&L was handwritten. So it's just, it's been very interesting to kind of see the differences in terms of the, uh, just, it's been a lot harder to analyze these deals because there's not as much of a standardized P&Ls or, and then also in terms of data, it's not going to be SDR data, it's going to be um, hotel data. So, uh, you know, just understanding how to underwrite hotels as commercial assets and not just as a bigger STR. That was one of the bigger re realizations. And also a lot of deals don't end up penning out when, when it's a hotel versus when it's SDR. I pretty much closed almost 100% of the SDRs that was under contract for. But for hotels, for the first eight or nine deals that I was looking at, I was under letter of intent, um, let LOI for, where I was under contract for, a lot of those didn't end up working out. And then finally, the biggest thing was financing, just because it's going to be much more difficult to finance a hotel if you don't have previous hotel experience. So for our first deal, we bought a 48 key hotel and um, it was definitely a big jump, but we felt really comfortable about it just because it was in really good condition, despite it being from the 1980s. And it was in a town where everything, all the other hotels were ugly. So just from my SDR background, I knew that if we made this pretty, then we will be everyone else in that market. And then also there was SDR, there were SDR regulations that were being enacted. So I also knew that we would be pretty much the only folks on Airbnb uh, legally uh, in town if, uh, or one of the few folks in town that would be on Airbnb. Um, and then finally we are, after about a few months of back and forth negotiations, I was able to negotiate seller financing uh, at 6% interest and the first year being interest only. And so, and then, uh, and we were able to get it at a really good price. So we got it for 750K um, for a 48. 48? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That is amazing. Ironic too, because our, our first deal was much smaller it was 13 units but it was the same thing we were able to get seller financing kind of skirted around all the the traditional lending for a hotel so 48 keys when you guys acquired that once you took it over how did and i we don't need to get super in the weeds but from a high level did you build a, a management team in-house did you you know hire out a third-party management company like how did that go for that because that's a quite a big jump 48 units is a big jump yeah. so how did that go did you have to yeah. renovate also? Did you have yeah. to do? Yeah, we did have to renovate it. And so it was, it had like hot pink carpet and popcorn <laughs> ceilings and this granny chic bedspread and also uh, granny chic um, wallpaper on Is the back. Granny chic? Granny chic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might have to steal that term. I love that. Granny chic to sleek. Uh, oh, modern sleep that. or something rustic sleep i don't know like it has to rhyme right so but you can see what the results of the hotel rooms are in my virtual background that's what it looks like for 16 of the rooms now we didn't upgrade all the rooms yet some of them are more uh, we did do one luxury airbnb type accommodation and then we have 16 renovated rooms and the other ones are just merely touched up 
And the reason we did that is because there's still a lot of uh, economy class bookings coming in. So we're, we're trying to see like, what is the true ROI of converting the remainder of the 16 rooms? Or is there really demand for another 16 renovated rooms? And then um, the back building, we are looking at if this Airbnb type accommodation is going to be really successful, where we're going to do more larger full kitchen residences in the back building. In terms of operations, we were really lucky. And this is also why we ended up uh, buying this deal out of all the other hundreds of deals that we analyzed. It's because we already had an existing hotel manager that was willing to stay on the property uh, at least for a year or so to help us transition. And she's been with the property for a very long time. She comes highly recommended by our uh, the previous sellers. So, And then also that we knew that these sellers would be super helpful towards uh, and basically introduced us to everyone in town. And that's very, very important. Um, in terms of team, we have a very, very small team there right now. We just have two full-time staff and um, and then two cleaners, and that's about it. Um, so we are probably going to have to hire more in advance of the peak season, just because this is going to be our first season where we have been open uh, and we're able to take bookings well in advance. Last year, we were fully booked during the peak season, but, um, you know, it was just all hands on deck kind of thing. But this year, we're really going to hire additional cleaning team um, in uh, before the fall peak season. Mm-hmm. Love yeah, that, that makes but sense. I want to, um, we were talking offline, and I, I definitely want to dive into the market analysis and like, where do you find data? Cause that is also very different on the hotel side. And I know mm-hmm. I ran into some struggles on my first deal cause there just wasn't much available for the market that I was in. So let's talk about just like analyzing markets and analyzing deals for a bit around mm-hmm. like, where do we get data for hotels? Do we just go to AirDNA. Do we like, what does that look like? And then we can dive a little bit deeper on like analyzing properties. I think uh, for I think everyone's strategy might be slightly different. I know people who are very data driven, um, and, and you know, even for SCRs, a lot of people, some people will look at the global or USA uh, nationwide data and kind of dry, uh, kind of curate a few target locations from that. Uh, for me, it was more like I've always liked areas that's within two to three hour driving distance from major metros or growing metros. So whenever I'm analyzing a market, I'm looking at how, what's the general population within a two to three hour radius, and is that population growing? Um, that's one of the most important things for me. And then also, uh, what are the natural disaster risks, et cetera, like before. Uh, so I look at a lot of global trends before I look at uh, the actual numbers. In terms of the numbers, um, AirDNA and Data Rebu can be helpful in terms of tourism trends and seasonality and stuff as a cross-reference, but we mostly rely on CoStar data for hotels. So we always look at the hot- uh, hotel data in terms of what is a re- uh, revenue per available room or RevPAR in that area. We are looking at whether that RevPAR number is going up or down. We're looking at the RevPAR number between co- different classes of hotels economy, mid-scale, upscale, luxury, for example. Um, and then we're also looking at the sales price per key, whether that's going up and down or down, and what is this hotel selling for relative to all those factors. And then finally, we're looking at the cap rate. 
and uh, for that market and then seeing what this hotel is selling at relative to uh, what, what cap rate this hotel is selling at uh, relative to the market. And because the interest rate is going up, um, a lot of folks have said that you really have to analyze each hotel deal at a 1% higher cap rate than uh, what the CoStar data is showing right now, just because CoStar data is 12 months trailing. So it, even though the interest rates have gone up a lot more in the last 12 months, so the data is really about uh, a year lagging in terms of where the cap rate is. So we've been adding 1% to any cap rate that we find on CoStar. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, on CoStar, they have a lot, and I'm just trying to give some more context for folks that are really trying to dive in, because CoStar has a lot of different products on the commercial side, are we talking um, like their like str.com stuff or is there other stuff like within CoStar? I know they have a ton of reports stuff too, but just for a little more context, I guess. Okay, so it's really just a, the co general CoStar, not the star reports because the star reports, do we do look at star reports that sometimes sellers will provide. Um, the larger sellers uh, with franchise hotels, they might actually have star reports provided as part of the seller's package. But we're just talking about the market uh, overview analysis. So that usually breaks down um, what the sales price per key is uh, in general, and then also what the sales price per key is for economy hotels or for mid-scale hotels or for luxury hotels. And then it also shows the same sort of broken down by offering and class of hotels for um, rep par, ADR, occupancy, et cetera. So that's kind of what we use. Uh, we sometimes will get a star report pulled as well. Um, that's very, very helpful if it's a larger purchase, uh, but um, usually we will rely more on CoStar, the main Yeah. Part. The, the reason I ask is just because when folks start exploring this, the, the issue I was referring to before is the way that the star reports work is you only can get data if the hotels in the market report to star. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you pay them an annual fee and I submit monthly data to them and then in return, I get a comp set every month. But if no other hotels submit, yeah. like one of our markets, there's no data to give. Yeah. You. So just be aware of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think CoStar boss star. So I think yes. I'm, I, I think this CoStar data may actually be pulled from star anyway. I'm, don't call me on that. I'm pretty sure um, that's where the CoStar hotel data does come from. So it's kind of the same thing. So there's not a lot of folks that are joining the star program in a market, then the CoStar data is not going to be as accurate as some of the other markets. STR Nation, want to know how I gained $817,000 in equity in 19 months using none of my own money? Well, if you haven't already heard me talk about boutique hotels, I just recorded an 18-minute case study for my private mastermind group on how I bought a tiny 13-unit hotel in Rockport and more than doubled its value from 2.25 to 5.5 million in 19 months. But instead of keeping this one a secret, I decided to share it with you guys completely free. Just go to www.strsecrets.com hotels to access the case study and promise in just 18 minutes, you'll know why boutique hotels are my favorite STR strategy in 2023. I break down everything from the renovations, the location, the investment, the equity, the financing, and how to take advantage of forced appreciation. So when you have 20 minutes, go to www.strsecrets.com hotels. And now let's get into this week's episode. And then walk us through. So like we have talked about this offline as well. It's just like sometimes, for example, the latest one you bought 
it's a flagship hotel. So like, I assume that like all of the records and the PLs you get are pretty accurate. And then some other stuff you got, you got a piece of paper scribbled by the, by the seller that says like, I think I paid Joe the landscaper this much a month and so on and so forth. Right. So like when you're looking at, at the numbers, the actual numbers, like now you have, have identified the property and you're looking at the actual numbers. How did you distinguish what's good, what's realistic, and then what do you run your analysis on to yeah. see whether or not you want to buy the place? So, yeah, so P&L is definitely very wildly. I will say that I normally look at the P&L mostly just for the expenses column than the profit column uh, or the gross prop revenue column just because I'm looking closer at the CoStar data for what the pro forma gross revenue will be. I am looking at the actual financials to see how long we are going to have to pay for the mortgage out of pocket and how easy it is going to get bank financing. So if it's currently going to cash flow based on the current market interest rate, it's going to be infinitely easier for us to get a really, really good banking product. If there isn't a lot of gross revenue, it's not like it's a completely no no answer. It just means that we might have to work a lot harder to find financing or we have to go back and negotiate seller financing and uh, use that P&L as our bargaining chip. I think one of the things that I want to mention with the P&L is that it can, there's so many hidden expenses that someone may not know exist when they're looking at someone's P&L. And then there's so many ways to add extra expenses as well like in, in preparing the P&L. So having someone who understands how to read the P&L and how to ask the right questions is very, very crucial. For example, if a hotel is currently a mom and pop hotel and a family of five is helping out at the hotel and they're living on site and they're all chipping in and they're getting paid $0 an hour, well, um, I've seen a lot of folks who are looking to uh, implement like more of a remote hotel operation model and they get really in surprise that, oh my gosh, we actually have to hire people and pay people. And instead of having five free hands to help on site, we're going to have a larger operational expense. And so that's one of the things I see a lot. Um, another thing is that, uh, you know, franchise fees, if you're taking that out, a lot of people just simply take that out. Uh, they're deflagging a hotel, but sometimes that does mean that you're going to have additional marketing fees that are for your independent branded hotels to make up for that. So you can't just simply take that franchise fee off and expect um, everything else to remain the same. Um, so there's just so many things. Uh, if you are, you know, looking to um, renovate, you have to make sure that there's going to be the right accurate the, the accurate financial projections to account for the number of days that it's going to be offline. I think people always underestimate how long renovations take. It's always going to take at least twice as long as you think it's going to take. And uh, and guests don't love construction on the property either. And you're, there, there could be also nails on the property too. So in the parking lot. So there's just a lot of things that you have to watch out for when it's a hotel versus just a single family STR. So many, so many directions we could go off of that out of curiosity. And again, just to give them a little context and it, it may vary. I know it will vary the greater size you go and the more things that you offer, but 
on average, like our portfolio is doing anywhere from like 58 to 62% expense ratio. And again, these are small. They're like 13 and 21. I think we're going to have a lot more efficiencies, probably around like 53% expense ratio on the bigger one. So I'm bringing this up just because I've analyzed some deals like you have where I focus more on where I think I can get the revenue to see what their current expenses are, and then kind of adjust those based on some of our portfolio in that area. If somebody's brand new, you know, looking at some hotels, one of the biggest mistakes I see is one, not budgeting enough for the renovation and the time, like you said, and then two is just not analyzing the expenses or they're just way too low. Do you have a rule of thumb that you'd like to use when you're just like back of the napkin math when you're analyzing these to see if it would even make sense? Um, I would say where you're at with your hotels is kind of a, a good start. Um, I think when it comes to, it also comes to the class of hotels. So like, I think uh, limited service mid scale is going to be more, you know, I think like a 40 to 50% expense ratio if you run it the way that we're doing versus a luxury hotel might go up to 60, 70%. Um, so it just really depends. I think a lot of people want this super luxury product, but, and then they have all these great ideas sometimes with stars, stars in their eyes, what they don't realize is that that's going to be a lot of extra expenses and it might actually not be additional ROI. Um, so I would say, yeah, it kind of depends on the offering, but I think it will be probably similar to where you're basing your assumptions at for independent hotels. For the flagged hotels. I've never purchased one, so I'm just curious. What typically comes with like the franchise fee? Like they don't necessarily give you a management team, but they basically give you all the systems and they incorporate you into like their corporate website and marketing and things like that. Or what 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 I guess is is included with some of that stuff typically. And full disclosure, I'm not the ops guy um, on our franchise hotel, but I can tell you just by negotiating, helping negotiate the franchise contract and what that goes into it and just helping with the initial onboarding process, franchises differ based on which brand it is. So there's like Hilton and Marriott's uh, and then there's like Choice, Wyndham. Those are probably the most popular franchise brands. Choice and Wyndham, they're a little bit lower on the franchise fee uh, in terms of the totem pole, whereas Marriott and Hilton um, have higher franchise fees usually. And then uh, in terms of pretty much all fees, Hilton and Marriott is going to have a lot more. They also have a lot more um, expectations for staffing and et cetera, which is why they have achieved this you know, elite status because guests know Hilton and Marriott. They know there's always a hot breakfast or there's always uh, amazing uh, room service or whatever that is. But that does come with like a lot of additional fees, a lot of additional necessary staffing. With our hotel is currently a Wyndham property for the next 12 months or so. Um, so I can speak about Wyndham specifically. And I will say that they, uh, they have they're helping us market on the Wyndham site. And so a lot of people just stay just because it is a microtel by Wyndham. And so this is a, one of the approved brands that they're allowed to use when they're doing corporate traveling. Um, so Bentonville, Arkansas, it's not just a leisure market. It's also a very high uh, corporate travel market. 
Um, so there's a lot of, uh, because that's where the Walmart headquarters are. And so a lot of vendors that are coming in to meet with Walmart, they will end up staying at our hotel. There's a lot of construction going on and, um, just flipping construction, new construction, whatever, uh, in our town. So right now, because we're more of an economy state hotel, we end up also having a lot of these, uh, vendors for construction companies as well. Um, so it's a pre-approved brand with a lot of these companies. And so it kind of brings in a, a set of clientele already. They know exactly what to expect from a Microtel um, brand. And then the other thing is that we do get tied into their events uh, system. So for any sort of requests for bids for events that are upcoming in the area, we also get uh, a notification for an RFP um, and then also we have an in-house uh, revenue manager person who is assigned to this area. She's been doing revenue management for Bentimo Hotels um, for Wyndham for a long time now. So and then we also get all their software um, as well as part of the, the process. But the OTA fees are on top of the franchise fees. So that's the kicker is that you're paying for two sets of fees. You're paying for like. Uh, Expedia, Hotels.com fees, and then you're also paying for the franchise fees on top of that. And then the th downs another downside is that it, you have to ha charge the same amount on Expedia as you are charging on Wyndham. So there's a, there's very little incentive for people to book directly through Wyndham, like if they know Expedia or they travel through all these other sites more. But now you are like incentivizing people to book through the channel that you get charged both OTA fees as well as the franchise fees for. So that's like the the downside. Because I know a lot of SCR folks, when they're encouraging their guests to book direct with them, they can give them a discount. But we actually can't do that when we're tied to a franchise. So hopefully that will change when we switch over to independent next year. Awesome. If he doesn't have questions, I'm going to keep going. No, I, I mean, like, no, I have my question and was more related to the earlier conversation. But um, to me, it's, it's been so like using seller financing has been such a great way that we have built our wealth. And, and I think people maybe can understand how to have the conversation on a smaller scale. Uh, but I wanted to see if you have any like suggestion or hacks on how people can approach that conversation at a big scale. Like you buy in this hotel. And you go to the seller, you're like, hey, I need owner financing. So what are some of the like things or tricks or, or things that you've like leveraged in your favor to have a successful seller financing kind of conversation with a seller? I think the big thing about negotiations in general is that it can't be just an ask on your end. Like it can't be like, hey, seller, do me a favor. And that can't be the overall tone of what you're asking for. Instead, we always pitch it as a, uh, a solution to their problem. And it is because um, if the seller is retiring, then it might actually be more beneficial from a tax perspective for them to um, do an installment sale instead of, you know, and we always say like, hey, you can always check with their CPA to see if this is actually the case for you, like, you know, and come back to us or whatever. But often we're saving sellers taxes because they're seller financing to us. Or another way that we're pitching it is that they want a certain price, even though they don't have very good financials. And given the current banking market, it's going to be very hard for them to sell it any other way. And so we are working with them 
to help them sell their hotel. So uh, I always uh, pitch it as a solution to their problem rather than, hey, I want seller financing because I can't get financing right now. I always say like, hey, do you know you can save on taxes if you potentially if you uh, seller finance to us or, hey, do you know that uh, you can sell it for the asking price closer to asking if you seller finance or work with us for a few years? And so that's usually how we pitch it. And then it's really just up to neg- uh, understanding how to negotiate um, to make sure that your team is protected in a- any sort of creative financing deal. So understanding how to negotiate balloons, understanding how to negotiate interest, amortization versus interest only payments, understanding, um, you know, just all those things is really helpful in making sure that both parties are happy in the when they walk away from the from the table. One thing you said earlier, I want to tie it back into what you just said, because I think it's super important. Obviously, we always we always want to get the best deal humanly possible. And I've seen some people try and push that too far, but you talked about at the beginning and I have found this immensely true is that you want to keep a good relationship with the seller because when you take that over, when certain things come up, I can, I have all three of the hotels that we bought. I have this previous seller's cell phone number and it doesn't happen often, but especially when you take it over, you may have forgotten to ask them a question about some certain thing. But if you burn that bridge and absolutely destroy them in the negotiation and kind of force their hand to sell, they have no incentive to help you, right? So just keep that in the back of your mind that like there's certain things or certain relationships that maybe they have that will be an intangible asset for you once you take the property over. Very, very true. And I think that it also helped us land the seller financing because we already had built a personal relationship with the seller and they really wanted us to succeed. And so... Actually, for our first hotel, when it first uh, there was a snowstorm and we're not used to snowstorms, so we didn't have any snow um, equipment. So the seller came over and just started shoveling snow. And we're like, we have a free employee for the day. Like it was it was quite nice of him. And so, yeah, we we're really close to our previous sellers just because. Um, it, you know, we, we try to build that relationship first and then, uh, try to create a win-win situation for the sale so that they're happy with what they did and we're happy with what we got as well. Love that. Love that. Awesome. Well, I feel like we could do a part two to this and go even deeper. Yeah. I mean, that's, this has been so much fun and I feel like we're like hardly kind of like going over the surface. Like I would have loved to ask you like what the vision is, because I assume somebody that has had the journey that you have, um, you have quite a plan as to what's what's kind of coming. So maybe you can give us like what the goals are for this next like 12 to 18 months so that we have kind of like a little sneak peek to like what you're working on. Uh, and then we can have you on for a for a secondary show where we literally go into like the the large vision of your hotel brand, which I assume it's something that it's in the works. Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, we are raising $10 million this year to buy 8 to 10 hotels at 30 to 40% discount. And um, I can go into a whole essay on why hotels are for sale this year, but I'm not going to go into that. And so I co-founded Welcome Capital with three of my business partners. And so we're buying, uh, it's supposed to be for SCRs and hotels, but we have 
a lot more luck with hotels recently, just being able to buy at a discount versus just STRs. So we have that going. And then meanwhile, I help folks, uh, you know, learn more about hotel acquisitions as well, so that we basically have a larger team to help us analyze hotel deals and stuff like that. Um, so that's another initiative I'm building. Um, so, so yeah, we have a, an in-person um, small uh, training event in North Carolina in August at our 19-unit um, boutique hotel here in Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is where I'm sitting right now. And uh, so we're going to go through a lot of deals in person as well. Love that. Um, do you got any links for that stuff people can go check out? I do. Do I just uh, text it? That, do I just send that to you guys or... Uh, yeah, if, you, if it's a long link, you can send it and we'll make sure it gets down in the show notes. Okay, that would be awesome. But uh, folks who are just watching this live, you can also message me on DIES at, uh, on Instagram at DIESQ as well. Love it. Love it. Well, Dia, thank you for coming on here. Before we get into the last question, I uh, just want to acknowledge you. And uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you and just seeing your journey and all the amazing things that you got going on. So thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And so the last question that we ask all of our guests, I'm going to reframe it a little bit, but what is your number one secret to success with boutique hotels? Oh, it's hard. There's so many things. Um, uh, number one is to never overpay in real estate. So we always try to buy 30 to 40% off uh, relative to what the sales comps are. And, you know, we just have a lot more exit strategies because we already bought and we already made money. Uh, just by buying at a lower price and having built in equity from day one. Love it. Love it. Real estate fundamentals, baby. Awesome. Well, Dia, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, like I said, we will definitely have to schedule a part two and we'll make sure to get all the links down in the show notes for you guys. And uh, for listeners, if you're interested in boutique hotels, you're going to want to listen to this one a couple of times. Make sure you follow Dia. And uh, that's it for this week, guys. Have an amazing week and we'll talk to you soon. Ciao, guys. Hey, STR Nation, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And in the comments, let us know what topics you want us to cover on upcoming episodes, and we'll make sure to get that in the books for you. And if you really want to learn how to launch, automate, and scale your short-term rental business, if you want to go deeper, then check out our free masterclass at strsecrets.com.